meet my problem. Is this scaring you at all, Bob? Yeah. I'm not going to call you up here as my assistant. Okay, guys, I have some announcements. All right, this is for those of you at home as well. So last week we did communion and we were talking about it and we thought that it would be really cool to have another one of these. But the problem is we didn't buy it somewhere. Somebody sewed this, like they went to a fabric store and got this black velvet and then they got this nice cushy foam. And I could pretend to sew this. And that would be very interesting, and it would probably end with, like, hot glue and blisters. Um, but we just were like, maybe somebody here knows of someone that would be willing to sew this for us, to take a look at it and just kind of be like, hmm. So that's, my, that's it. That's all I got for that. So the next time we have communion in a few weeks, um, we'll see. Okay, the other thing I wanted to tell you about is soccer club. And we are, of course, super excited. We want you to invite your friends to come to this. Um, it is such a cool thing that we get to do together. We opened up our registration last Saturday afternoon, and I had reported by the next day, I think we had 50. We're at 105. Um, our, yeah, the last year we had 150, so um, that's really cool. I will also say, if you have a kid that you know wants to come, our classes do fill up. Um, and so please register your kids if you know that they'll be attending soccer club. Don't wait to the last minute on that. If you are coaching or you are volunteering, we don't have you pay for your kids to go. That's like the least that we can do is to have your kids come for free. So just reach out to me and say, my kids are coming. That's all you need to do is email Jen. Um, what else did I want to say about that? Here's why. We don't want to keep kids outside at all, but we want to make sure that we have the staff and the manpower to do what we do well. And one of the most important things, one of the highest value items there at Soccer Club is not that we get the most kids possible, but that every kid that's there feels known and valued and seen. And if we can't do that with 20 to 30 kids in one class with one grown-up helping them. So we like to keep our classes really small so that there can be that one-on-one -on -one investment. So... Please, if you think that you might be able to help us out as well with coaching, we have a store that we run every day, we have registration and check-in, we have people that we need to help set up fields, All of we even have pooper scoopers. That was a new task we added last year when we moved to Mount Lake Terrace High School because the goose poop, you guys, is real. <laughs> the super funny thing is we use tongs. We gave the kids tongs and cups and had them like pick up poop in the morning and they would get a Brookview dollar for every cup of poop that they found <laughs> to spend in the store. And then at the end of the week, we didn't really think it was the same type of tong that we were using for the barbecue. And the kids were like, I'm not having any burgers. I'm not hungry. And we're like, no, 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 not the same tongs. They're from the dollar store. They were cheap. So... 
we're probably going to have to use a different method so that kids can eat on Friday. But we have tons of fun, and we have tons of fun um, shifting when we realize things are not as they should be. So our first day, super funny, in the two- and three-year-old class, they do somersaults because, you know, they can't do that much soccer, so we teach them how to do somersaults. <laughs> poopy backs, that's all I have to say, poopy backs. Um, and Jason's looking at me like, move along. So text soccer to our Brookview number or fill out your Connect card online to let us know your kids are coming. Um, but the registration for soccer club that you can share with people is at brookviewchurch.com forward slash soccer. Um, I did mention that Connect card. We love to hear from you guys. Will you sign up? That's a way that you can sign up for Soccer Club as well. So um, we love hearing from you throughout the week. And that's it. Jennifer, I love those announcements, all of them, the whole thing. So I'm not an evil dictator staring down the poor announcements lady. All right, you guys, we are, we've been in this series called Eating and Drinking. How awesome is that? And we have been talking about the way that Jesus loved, empowered, and included people, all kinds of people. We've also talked about how the earliest followers of Jesus, this new community called the church, they took the vision from Jesus, they took the ball, and they just ran with it. Um, it was the followers of Jesus that really first began in the ancient world to include women and to empower them. It was this new community that provided like extreme hospitality. It was the followers of Jesus that, that first started hospitals that, that was birthed right out of the movement of Jesus. They kept caring for the poor and the, and the sick and the broken. And so much in our world that we kind of take for granted as normal, that's really good, began through the church. This might raise a question for some of you. You might be thinking, yes, the church has done some amazing things in our world. But hasn't the church also done horrific things in the name of Jesus? And the answer to that, of course, is Yes, like, like horrific things, terrible things. I, I, think of, I think of the Crusades. I think of the KKK burning crosses. I think of the way Native Americans were treated by, quote, missionaries. I mean, we, we could, honestly, we could go around this room and just name off stuff that comes to mind, and we could go on and on and on because it is appalling, and it's heartbreaking. The things that have been done in the name of Jesus and even continue to be done in the name of Jesus is, is heartbreaking. So let me make a very simple observation. Human beings, inherently, human beings have a hunger for power, wealth, and glory. And human beings will use any means possible to pursue them, and that includes religion. And it includes Christianity. 
That does not make Christianity or the way of Jesus bad. It becomes bad when it's no longer the way of Jesus. Yes? So like several years ago, Jen and I went with a group of pastors to Russia. And we were doing some sort of preliminary missions work. And we visited this like magnificent Orthodox church in St. Petersburg, Russia. And they happened to be holding a service while we were there, which was like a bonus. It's kind of open for the public to come and gawk at. But they actually were having church. So it was like this super authentic experience. There was a priest in a robe. You guys like it if I wore a robe? I would rock a robe. And he was, he was giving the message. Actually, he was singing the message. That's how they do it. And it was echoing throughout this, this cavernous, grand architecture. And he had this, like, amazing, powerful, deep voice. And I realized, I will never be the pastor of this church. <laughs> but then in the back, in the very back, up on this little perch was this choir of heavenly voices. So the priest would sing and, like, give the call. And then the choir in the back would sing in response. They would just, it was this call and response thing going back and forth, and it all, it all felt very sacred. And the Bible stories were painted all over the inside of this massive cathedral, like even on the ceilings. I mean, it was just, it was breathtaking. Like the most famous artists in Russia came together and they painted these. And then there was gold everywhere. Everything was like leafed in gold, or there was like legit gold everywhere. I cannot imagine the expense. So with the architecture, the art, the gold, the the singing priest and the choir responding, it was all just kind of spine tingling. But here was the thing about it. None of it was in English. That's not shocking. We're in Russia. So, (laughs) but here's the thing. It wasn't in Russian either. It was all done in an ancient language that no one speaks anymore. So the point was not that the words would instruct or encourage or challenge or equip the the hearers, the participants, to actually live the way of Jesus. The point was to walk into a holy cathedral, a holy temple, and feel the holiness of it, and uh, and then somehow like allow the holiness to rub off on you. And some of you have had Religious experiences like that, Christian experiences like that. There are many expressions of Christianity that are like that. But it made me wonder to myself, how did this, this cathedral, this experience, the singing priest and the robes and the gold and the ornaments and the whole deal, how did this become what we call church? Like, how did church become an extravagant cathedral? an impersonal event, a place where where no one is even instructed in their own language, a a place of wealth and opulence that is just like beyond grandeur, just beyond imagination. Like how did we go from followers of Jesus doing church in homes around tables, these intimate communities that that functioned like family, which is is what it was in the beginning, to what I was watching in St. Petersburg that day? How did church become uh, a cathedral or, or, or like an event to attend? When did it stop being a family of people learning to practice the way of Jesus together? How and when did this thing become so institutional? What in the world happened with the movement of Jesus? 
And so I, I want to begin today, we're going to dive into that today, but I want to begin by thinking about that something that Jesus said about wine. Um, this is all about eating and drinking, so it ties nicely into our theme. This is Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. It says, Then John's disciples, as in John the Baptist's disciples, came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will, will be taken from them, then they will fast. Then he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No they, no, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. So the disciples of John the Baptist are wanting to know, okay, how, Jesus, how come you, Rabbi, how come you break from the traditions of the Jewish people? How, how come you and your disciples don't fast like the rest of us? How come you go around eating and drinking all the time, just eating and drinking and more eating and drinking and more eating and drinking without fasting? What, what are you up to, Jesus? Like, this is different. In response to the question about fasting, which is really more about the Judaic traditions, why don't you follow our sacred traditions and practices, Jesus? He uses two metaphors, putting, on, putting a new patch on, on old clothes and pouring new wine into old wineskins. And these two ideas were just kind of common sense in their culture. New cloth hadn't shrunk yet, right? So using it as a patch on older clothes was foolish because as soon as you wash, the, wash that thing and it dries, it, it, it shrinks and the whole thing begins to tear. Similarly, old wineskins had been stretched to their limit. As wine fermented inside them, they, they stretched and then they became brittle. So to put new wine in already used ones, like as it fermented, it would stretch them even further until they would finally burst. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the old system of doing religion has served its purpose. It was great in its day but it cannot serve as the container anymore. Jesus says he's come to bring something new, the kingdom of God. And the old religious system isn't sufficient to contain it. What he's up to, it's bigger than the old system can hold. Now this is like freeing. For those of you that don't like legalism and rules and all that, like, yes, praise, praise Jesus, right? But this is actually really hard to live within. Because think about it, Jesus came to do something new. He came to do something big. He came to teach us his way, but as humans, we all have a way that we already follow. And it's influenced a ton by the culture that's around us, and it's influenced by our, our previous religious experiences. And this makes learning and living the way of Jesus super difficult. We take what we already know, we take what we already believe, we take what already seems good to us, and then we try to take the teaching of Jesus and cram it into the paradigm or the system that we already have. For Jewish people, it was, it was all the Old Testament law and the Judaic traditions. 
They were hearing Jesus teach about the kingdom of God, like his way, and they're, they're trying to take that and somehow assimilate it into what they already knew, right? Eating kosher, circumcision, fasting, Sabbath laws, and on and on. But the container was inadequate to hold it. It's, it's almost as if Jesus was intentionally blowing up their container. Some Jewish people were, were willing. I mean, some Jewish people were willing to discard the container. As time went on, more and more were willing to discard the container. And they were able to receive what Jesus came to bring. But other people could not. They could not discard the old way. They were so in love with the old wineskin that they couldn't receive the new wine that Jesus came to bring. Okay, and then in the early church, there developed a raging debate. It was like, okay, all these people in Jerusalem, all these, among all these Jewish people, they start following Jesus, right? But then it starts spreading to people that aren't Jewish. Whoa, wait a minute. So eventually they're like, wait, whoa, wait. Okay, we know that non-Jews like Gentiles can participate in the kingdom. We know that this isn't just for Jewish people. And that was a huge realization. But the big issue became, okay, yeah, but don't the Gentiles have to become Jewish to participate? And so we see Paul and we see some of the other apostles and the, and the leaders, they definitively proclaim, no way. Absolutely not. The old Judaic law is the old wineskin and it cannot contain the new kingdom. But some could not let it go. And so this debate raged on for a few decades. They, they wanted to take Jesus and fit him into what they already knew. And the advocates for this, for this were, in the early church, they were called Judaizers. Now, becoming Jewish was like, when you think about it, it was like super complicated for Gentiles. And for men, it required a little <clears throat> surgery so for Gentile men, it was like, okay, uh, Jesus is awesome, but the whole circumcision thing, it's throwing me. Uh, I mean, you guys like, listen, listen, Jewish friends and Jewish brothers, you guys were babies when this thing went down. I am a full-grown man. But the Judaizers were like, no, 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 to follow Jesus, you have to become Jewish like all the way. So here's how Paul responds to the issue in one church community in Galatia. This issue is raging. And he says, Galatians 5, verse 1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So Paul is saying that freedom itself is on the line in this debate. It goes on, verse 2, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, for the record, Paul was in no way against the practice of circumcision. Like, Paul was Jewish, right? He was circumcised. All the disciples, all Jews, they'd all been circumcised. Many of you have been circumcised. In fact, if you are... No. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> that was going to get real authentic. <laughs> Paul was not against the practice of circumcision. Okay, it, it's not about that. It's that circumcision in this context represented the entire old covenant. And it's trying to fit what's new into the old container. 
And so Paul, Paul continues. He says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let me repeat that. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He's saying the old container cannot possibly hold what Jesus is now trying to pour into you. And, and, and to these non, like non-Jewish Christians in Galatia that are wrestling with this, Paul continues, he says, you were running a good race. And he says, who cut in on you? That is a little play on words <laughs> from the whole circumcision theme. <laughs> you guys were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one, the one who calls you. Okay, this is not the call of the Father, he's saying. This is not the call of Jesus. And then you, you really get to see in this passage, I think this is awesome because you get to see Paul's actually a pretty funny dude. Uh, he just sort of keeps running with the whole circumcision theme. And he says, verse 12, he says, as for those agitators, okay, the Judaizers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. I wish they'd just cut the whole thing off. That's in the Bible, you guys. Is that crazy? You know what? You should read the Bible. Paul is, Paul is taking this whole circumcision thing like super seriously. Why? Because he actually wants them to experience the new wine. All of it. The whole deal. He doesn't want them to miss what Jesus has come to pour into us. And he makes that clear. Verses 13 to 14 kind of wraps up this whole thought. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So this issue of becoming Jewish got debated. It got debated back and forth for several decades. But as Christianity spread further and further beyond Israel, as more and more Gentiles came to Christ throughout the Roman Empire, this kind of just stopped being the divisive issue. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. He came to bring new wine, and the old way of Judaism could not contain the greatness of it. It included people of many ethnicities and religious backgrounds. And the thing that enabled this new multi-ethnic family to thrive was its simplicity. Jews, alongside former worshipers of like the Roman gods, all together following Jesus, living together under a simple, beautiful vision. This, this rabbi from Nazareth had given like a one-word command with like three applications, and it went like this. Love God, love one another, and love your enemy. And you guys, for almost 300 years, this new movement lived largely by this. I mean, they had a few issues to work out here and there to be sure, but this new unified multi-ethnic family of God just continued to grow and flourish. Like all throughout the Roman Empire, it grew and it flourished and people took notice because they're like, this is different. These people are at peace 
Like despite brutal persecution, they don't seem to fear death. They were unyieldingly devoted to Jesus and to one another. They even loved their enemies. They loved in a way that the world had never seen. And you know what's amazing? Like reading, if you read the ancient literature, the Romans were absolutely mystified by how the Christians lived. They were, they were strangely intrigued by this new community because the Christians would do crazy stuff. They would like, like for instance, they would go out in the streets and they would rescue children and infants that had been abandoned. We saw last week in Roman culture, if a child was unwanted, if a child was disabled or deformed or had any kind of an issue, or if the child happened to be a girl, children were regularly abandoned, just left to die by what? What do we call that? Exposure. And this was common. But the Christians would, would go out and they would, and they would find those children and they would take them in and they would care for them and they would raise them as their own and they would care for the poor and the sick, not just their own. They would care for pretty much anybody in need, regardless of belief. The, the Roman Empire had never seen anything like this. In spite of how dangerous it was to join this new movement, people were coming to Jesus by the droves. But the Romans struggled to like classify what this thing even is. They're like, it's not even a religion. They, they called the Christians atheists because they didn't worship all the Roman gods. And this wave that was sweeping the empire was new and different. And, and Roman officials struggled to understand it and they feared it. But within the empire, the masses were turning to it. Freedom, life, joy, love, family. The Roman authorities tried killing the Christians to put an end to this thing, right? Throwing them to the lions, setting them on fire on poles, slaying them in the arenas with gladiators. But the more they killed, the more it spread. And it spread without any earthly power. There was no political power. There was no military power. There was no coercion. It spread not by force, but simply by love. And the more they loved and more, more they were willing to suffer for it, the more beautiful it became to the watching masses. People saw a new kind of life, like a new kind of community, and they were captivated by it. They were mesmerized, and many eagerly joined the growing tide. It's, it's sort of like, it's sort of like the, the river in Ezekiel flowing out of the temple, like flowing into dark, dead places of the world and bringing life everywhere. Like everything it touched seemed to spring to life for almost 300 years. And then something happened. And it deeply impacted how the entire world now thinks about this thing we call church. The the Romans understood religion the way that pretty much the entire world always had. Now we talked about this several years ago, but Andy Stanley coined a description he said that prior to Jesus and the new wine of the kingdom, almost all religion could be classified as the temple system. And the temple system represents pretty much all the ancient religions, as well as many of the religions that are, that are still in the world today. The temple system goes all the way back to ancient Egypt and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. It describes the Greeks and the Romans and even the Jewish temple system. So we saw several years ago when we looked at this, the temple system always has three components. Okay, there's always a sacred place. There's always a sacred text, some sort of sacred text, and there are always sacred men. And it seems to almost always be men. 
So in the temple system, you, you have a sacred place. There's a house of worship or structure that's considered sacred. And contained in that sacred place are the sacred texts. They're writings or oracles or inscriptions of some kind. And then there are always sacred men who control and interpret those texts. And those men have great power. In fact, the temple system grants extraordinary power to sacred men in sacred places who determine the meaning of the sacred texts. So as, as we all know, in places like Syria and Iraq, there are some sacred places with some sacred men interpreting some sacred texts, asking people to do things that we think are appalling. Yes? And then in the mud hut regions of the world, you find this dynamic. If you go into like a mud hut community, you'll almost always find that the most powerful person is the priest or the shaman or the, the witch doctor. There, there's a, a sacred place where he presides. It might be marked with bones or charms of some kind, but everybody knows that there is spiritual power in that place, which is dispensed through that man, and that man wields amazing power over the community. Now, if you look at this, and you're hearing me talk about this, and you go, <clears throat> excuse me, Jason, pastor, isn't that exactly what this is? I mean, there's this sacred place, and then you're like up there, and you know, and you have the sacred text. Like, isn't this just more temple system? I just want to say, you guys, if, if what we're doing is just more temple system, if that's the way that we are thinking about church and we're behaving, we are completely missing it. And here's why. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple system and the beginning of something entirely new. There would be no more sacred places. You know why? Because Jesus taught that something else is far more sacred. People. So if you're standing in what you consider to be the most sacred place, never be confused. The person to your left or to your right or to the front or back of you is far more sacred to God than any patch of dirt or piece of architecture. With the arrival of Jesus, there'd be no more sacred places. There'd also be no more special sacred people. You'd no longer need a sacred man, like a high priest, a mediator between you and God. Jesus is our priest. That's the point. Jesus is our mediator. Through Jesus, every person on earth now has direct access to God. And so when it came to the sacred text, like the Old Testament, Jesus replaced the litany of commands with a single word, love. Jesus took everything in the Old Testament commands and summed it all up this way. Again, love God, love one another, love your enemy. And you just think of how simple that is and how, how beautiful. So throughout the Roman Empire, the movement continued to gain traction. They didn't have buildings to meet in, right? No sacred places. Mostly they just met in homes. Eventually, they would find some sort of maybe community space that they might be able to meet in if it was safe and they weren't being persecuted. And there was no sacred text. You're like, there was no sacred text? There was no sacred text. Mostly what they had was just oral stories that were passed down. 
While some of what's now the New Testament had been written, most communities only had bits and pieces of it if they had any part of it at all. Maybe they had a copy or two of Paul's letters. Maybe. Maybe they had a, maybe they had a copy of one of the Gospels or a partial copy of one of the Gospels, but mostly it was just stories being passed down. And the leaders were not considered especially sacred. They weren't priests or mediators. They didn't have some kind of special access to God. They didn't wear robes or have white collars or wear really cool, funky, holy hats. They, they, they didn't lead gatherings in languages that people didn't speak. They didn't stand over people. They didn't claim secret knowledge. They were just people that consistently displayed character, love. They were people known for a mature knowledge of what it is to follow Jesus. And within the early church, can I point out, there were leaders that were men and there were leaders that were women. Church was simple. No sacred places, no sacred texts, no sacred men. Just a community of forgiven people trying to live love together. It was beautiful. And all people were invited and many came. They, they came to follow Jesus, and they came to be a part of this new kind of community. Okay, and then, dun, 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 in the year 312, so almost 300 years after Jesus, in 312, Emperor Constantine, Emperor of Rome, Emperor Constantine, was on his way to do battle against his co-emperor, a battle to determine who would be the supreme ruler of the empire. And as history tells us, and as many of you learned in school, on his way into battle, Constantine got a vision of Christ. Some say it was an inscription, some say a voice, some a cross, but he received this message, in this sign, conquer. So, he painted crosses on the shields of his warriors, and they went into battle, and they won. And for the first time ever, the cross was used as a symbol of war. And Jesus was given credit for the military victory, and Emperor Constantine became a professing Christian. And all of this was the beginning of what's now called the Holy Roman Empire. The problem was that it was far more Roman and far more empire than it was holy. A year later, Constantine legalized Christianity in the empire, and when he did so, he then poured tons and tons of money into the church. And he elevated the status of the leaders, bishops, archbishops, priests, and he built enormous churches, these cathedrals, right? These temples all over the empire. And he became a collector of Christian relics and he littered the, the cathedrals with these relics. And suddenly everything he did was about elevating Christianity. And guess what? If you wanted power and wealth and glory in the empire, suddenly, overnight, the best avenue to pursue it was the church. Now, he did a lot of good things, too, before we start using Constantine's name as a swear word or something. He did a lot of good things. He, he, he banned the practice of crucifixion. That, that was the end of the Roman practice of crucifixion. He gave rights to children. He defended them. He donated money to families that took in orphans and children. But when you think of what happened, almost overnight, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. And the problem was, and this was nobody's intent, this was nobody's grand plan, but suddenly Christianity became inseparable from empire. 
and the church leaders under Constantine and later other emperors created their own version of the temple system. They created their own version of the temple system with just a little tiny bit of Christianity sprinkled into it. And now there would be new sacred places and a whole new group of sacred men. And soon they began to collect all the Christian text, Paul's writings and the gospels and a few other things, and they would bind them all together, they would chain them to the altar, and now they would control what was taught. And in time, the church would develop more structure. There'd be a pope and bishops and an archbishop and priests, and there'd be disputes about theology, about Christian beliefs. And the emperors would take sides in the interest of the empire. So by Roman law, you could be put to death if you were on the wrong side of a theological debate. The church held so much power. This was the way of the Romans. They took what they already knew, Okay, their old wineskin. They took what they already knew. Temples, cathedrals, wealth, power, glory, control. And they crammed or attempted to cram Christianity into their, into their wineskin, into their container. But it turns out the way of Jesus can't actually live there. That wineskin cannot contain the new wine of Jesus. People hungry for power and wealth and glory, they found a whole new avenue to get it. It wasn't that the way of Jesus suddenly had become bad. It's that in many ways, the way of Jesus had been forgotten. Not completely, of course. Like there was, there was always a remnant. There's always a small contingent of people committed to love who, ought it, who got it. They, they got it. And even amid dark times, there were always rays of light. But you guys, when Constantine became a Christian and made Rome Christian, some fundamental things changed, and we still haven't fully recovered. It's been 1,700 years, and we still have not fully recovered. Like, even in, in our very day, that includes all kinds of different churches. I mean, my gosh, you guys, there's, there's so many different kinds of churches. And, and honestly, I'm seeing a ton of church renewal, like some beautiful signs of life springing up all over the place. Beautiful things are happening. Beautiful things are happening in churches these days. But even so, when the average person in our culture hears the word church, they either think of buildings or they think of events. Church is a place or church is an event on Sunday. But when you think about it, prior to Constantine, throughout the entire Roman Empire, when Romans heard the word church, nobody thought about a building, and nobody thought about an event. They thought about a people. They thought about a community. They thought about a way. They thought about the way of Jesus. They thought about love. But because of what's happened, we now have so much to overcome. Like when Christianity stops being about the way of Jesus, when it's simply another thirst for power or wealth or glory, it does great damage. And instead of being a river that brings life, it becomes a fire that scorches everything that it touches. And so this brings me to you and me. Maybe you're here and you're like, I just, I just want a date. Can you tell me how to get a date? This is too, too much. <laughs> let, me, let me just, okay. I got issues in my life, man. Get, me, get, get, get to something relevant. Okay, here we go. Brings me to you and me. I, I, I just want to point out, okay, for you and me, to receive the new wine of Jesus, we can't try to fit it into old wineskins. 
So for the Judaizers, they, they wanted to cram the way of Jesus into the old ways. For them, that meant eating kosher, circumcision, fasting, Sabbath laws. That was the way they already knew, the old wineskin. For the Romans, the old wineskin was the way of Rome. It was temples and cathedrals and wealth and power and glory and control. They tried to cram Jesus into that container. And both of those attempts went badly, very badly. But here's, here's where it gets to you and me. We would be really naive to think that we are not tempted to do a very similar thing. Based on our culture and whatever our religious backgrounds happen to be, we all have a way. We all have a way. We have something that feels right to us. We have something that feels normal. We have a container. But the new wine, it needs a new container. And in our culture, like when you think about the container, in our culture, we value all kinds of things. We value success. We value wealth. We value pleasure. We value control. We value climbing the ladder. We value looking good. We, we value making a name for ourselves. And if you stop, stop and think about it, here's what we're valuing. We value power, wealth, and glory. It's packaged a little bit differently in our culture than it was in Judaism or in ancient Rome. There, but there are some very culturally acceptable ways to pursue these things. And there are some ways to pursue them that are not culturally acceptable. But power, wealth, and glory you guys, they are still very much in vogue. And, and, and here's the great temptation for you and me, is to take the container, the wineskin, the pursuit of, of these kinds of things, and to say, okay, this is the container, this is life, that, and try to cram Jesus into that container. I want glory. I want people to think that I am <laughs> awesome. Um, I want wealth. I want security, right? I want status. I want the control. I want pleasure. All the stuff that comes from wealth. I want power. I, I want to have say-so over as much around me and in my life as I possibly can. Now, maybe it's not that I want to dominate other people, but I want power. I want as much say-so as I can get. And I can convince myself that these things are the good life. These things are so good, in fact, that I can convince myself these, are, these things are God's greatest desire for me. And this becomes the container. This becomes the wineskin. And so as I follow Jesus, I want to fit him into this container. I, I will follow Jesus so that he can help me achieve my goals. Right? After all, Jesus said, if I pray for anything in faith, God will move mountains. And God will give me whatever I ask for as long as I pray in faith. Yes? So I'm like, oh, sweet. That's pretty sweet. There is great power in Jesus. Come, Lord. Come fill the container of my pursuit of power and wealth and glory. And yet I wonder if Jesus is sadly watching that kind of thing and thinking, you don't understand. That container can't hold what I'm trying to pour into you. You, you need to let go of that, that paradigm. You need to throw away that old container and allow me to come in and fill a new one. And so we go, um, okay. Well, what would that new container look like? And I think Jesus would say, well, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. It would look like love God, love one another, and love your enemy. And sometimes I think we wonder, okay, Jesus... Like, 
where's your power in my life? There's supposed to be power, right? But, but Jesus is looking at us and he's thinking, I am dying to pour into you, but you are refusing to discard the container that can't hold it. You guys, I've been, I've been reading the Gospels and the New Testament these past several months, and I'm just like, this theme, this wave just keeps hitting me. I've been realizing that, I don't know if you ever encounter this, I've been realizing that the teaching of Jesus is kind of hard to understand. And here's, here's part of what makes it hard. Some of it is, you know, he's in a different culture and all that, but part, here, part, of, part of why it's hard is because I try to fit the teaching of Jesus into a paradigm that can't hold it. Like, all I know is a pursuit of power and wealth and glory. That's our world. That's our culture. I was trained by teachers and my parents and the people who loved me most to go after that stuff. That's our culture. That's the container. But the thing is, is that way is completely incompatible with the kingdom. It's incompatible with the way of Jesus. It's a container that cannot hold the wine. These last few months, Jesus has, has really been speaking to me about this. And as I as I read scripture and as I pray and as I soap, and some of you do that, I'm, I'm beginning to see just more and more, like you, you're like, this is new for you. It's not completely new, okay? But I, like, I'm beginning to realize, it's just hitting me like how upside down the way of Jesus really is. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The greatest among you will be your servant. Wash one another's feet as I have done for you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. The way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, it is truly an upside down kingdom. And to experience the power of God, to experience the closeness of Jesus, to experience the anointing of Jesus, I'm going to have to let some things go. I have to discard the old way. I have to let go of the old wineskin. For Jesus to pour new wine into me, I have to adopt a whole new paradigm. And I guess it kind of comes down to this. If I want to see the power of God at work in and through me, I have to let go of trying to build my own kingdom. I have to receive and then work to build God's instead. So I started thinking about this, and I, I started thinking like, okay, what if we like took this seriously in our day? Like, okay, like what if, what if like a, a community the size of Brookview took Jesus seriously? What if, what if we let go of building our own kingdoms and what if we were constantly on the lookout for just ways to serve? What if everywhere we went, we thought, how can I bring the kingdom here? How, how can I build these people up? How can I bring the best out of them? How can I help them succeed? 
How can I help them toward joy? Where are, the, where are needs that I, I could meet? How, how can I make this situation or this place or these people, how can I make this look more like heaven? You guys, if a group our size really did that, think about this. If a group our size really did that, what might happen? How would it look? And here's what I think. I think it would look a lot like the book of Acts. I think it would, it would plant seeds that could lead to something huge. And the reason I think so is because a group about this size did this once. And before long, an entire empire was turned upside down. Is it possible that our culture could actually come to Jesus? You bet it is. But it will not come through more temple system. And it will not come through old wineskin Christians. New wine cannot be poured into old wineskins. So I just in closing this morning, I just want you to think about yourself. Think about your life. Think about your dreams. Think about the stuff you're working toward. And ask yourself this. Can the container you want Jesus to fill actually hold the new wine? Are you asking Jesus to build your kingdom or his? What in your life is standing in the way of, 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 of what Jesus is hoping to do? Because if you can let go of that, if you can begin to die to yourself, Jesus might just fill you with life that's beyond life. And, and these days, I'm beginning to feel, as the more I read and the just, I'm in the Gospels and I'm in the, in the letters, of, I'm just like, I, I feel this tension in myself. Like, oh my gosh. This is the kingdom of God, and then there's me and how I actually live. Here's the new wine Jesus is trying to pour into me, and here's the container that I'm demanding he pour it into. And I'm starting to feel this tension. I'm starting to realize that Jesus is, is inviting me to let go of a whole lot of stuff. And to tell you the truth, the more I think about it, the more I'm excited about it. Because I sense that if I do, something really beautiful is possible. So, okay, to close, I just, I, I want to invite the musicians to come up. And for the rest of you, I just want to invite you to stand. And I want to read some ancient words over you. Um, these words come from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. So, just bow your heads, close your eyes. Paul writes, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.